Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I'm so glad that you have come along, and this is going to be a great show because we have an expert guest who studied the history of revivals um, and is a history professor in general, but also has some other specialties that I think gives a nuance and unique perspective on what happened in Wilmore, Kentucky, Kentucky in February. But before I do that, I want to make sure you know that this podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And we've just added a new program for the Global Methodist Church. And to our surprise, and we knew we'd have a few students, but we've had 275 students be accepted in the last four months into this program. And so our classes now have dozens and dozens of global Methodist pastors. It's such a treat and blessing for us to be able to serve this emerging denomination, in addition to many other denominations, even though we come from a non-denominational Wesleyan holiness perspective. So we have a host of degrees from bachelor's, master's, doctoral degrees, uh, lay initiatives, courses of study. We'd love for you to check us out at WBS. Edu. I'm also thankful to Bill Roberts, who's a sponsor of this podcast. He's a financial planner who comes at that um, that discipline from a Christian perspective, and he helps people, particularly those who are in ministry, think about their future and how they can plan for it. So you can find more out about him at williamhroberts.com, and you can find a link to his site in my show notes. Also, uh, More to the Story Ministries has just in the last month or so put out two new publications. First, we have added a book to our Contender Study series. We had a video series called Contender, a study of the book of Jude, and now that has been published by Francis Asbury Press. So you can find a link to that at my website. This would be great for a small group discussion or for a Sunday school class. It's about 115 pages as we walk through the important book of Jude. And then also at the end of August, just in time for fall programming, we published a new study called Heaven and Other Destinations, A Biblical Journey Beyond This World. This is a small group study. It has five sessions that are about a half an hour long each. It includes discussion guides, bonus content, where we think about the biblical presentation of the doctrine of the afterlife. And it has been fascinating to see how people have taken this study and find it enlivening to their experience, particularly as they think about talking about heaven to their children. And there's even a small portion as we talk about the doctrine of eternal damnation. So there it is. You can find about out more about this at andymillerthe3rd.com. And you can also sign up for my email list where you, you'll see a link right there at the front page of my website. And if you sign up for my email list, I'll send you a free tool called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. It's a 45-minute mini course that I offer. I'd love for you to check that out. All right. I am glad to welcome to the podcast Dr. Mark Elliott, who is the um, editor emeritus of the East West Church and Ministry Report. He is a retired professor. He served on the campuses of Wheaton College and Asbury University. He resides in Wilmore, Kentucky. And I am so glad, Mark, to have you on the podcast. My pleasure. Uh, Mark, it's interesting. I saw an article that you submitted, and I found out that as a result of that article, that you have a new book coming out on the revival or the outpouring, as it's often called, that happened at Asbury. And that's something that on this podcast we covered as it was happening and just so interested in what's happening and what's continuing to happen as a result of that work of the Spirit. But 
but before we get into that, uh, this will help people understand why we brought you on. You come at this from a different perspective. So tell us a little bit about your story and even like how you've arrived to be in Wilmore at this point in your life. Well, I think I'm both an insider and an outsider in terms of looking at this phenomenal outpouring of God's spirit in Wilmore and at the Asbury institutions, the whole community yeah. back this uh, previous February. So as an insider, um, my wife and I are graduates of Asbury. I taught at Asbury. I served on the alumni board, the board of trustees. So I know the community from the inside, from that perspective. But I've also, as you mentioned, taught at other schools. I actually taught at other colleges and universities longer than I taught at Asbury. And I've had many decades of experience in ministry in Eastern Europe, short-term projects of various kinds. Uh, that's exposed me and helped me benefit from and better understand many other denominations and also the Eastern Orthodox Church. So I think those life experiences away from Wilmore, as well as my deep ties in Wilmore, allow me to look at this wonderful revival from both an inside and an outside perspective. That's it. Let me stop you there for a second, too, because you, you mentioned like teaching history at these two institutions, and I think particularly uh, so, some of my mentors of sorts, uh, they, they might not know they're my mentors uh, in history as I'm doing my work in historical theology in 19th century. Of course, I think of your colleague Ed McKinley at Asbury University, but then even colleagues at, at Wheaton and probably Mark Knoll, uh, Timothy Larson. These are that these are two stout departments, so I, I'm honored to have you on here. <laughs> well, let me just say that Mark Knoll, even though we come from different denominational traditions, was... Um, very helpful to me in my administrative as well as teaching role at Wheaton, and I consider him a dear friend. Yeah, I know, I know that many of us in the holiness movement would like to kind of uh, give him a little push for his uh, scandal of the evangelical mind, but uh, certainly appreciate the you know the work that he's done through the years. Well, speaking of the scandal of the evangelical mind, I wrote a, a long critique of that it didn't hurt our friendship, but we were definitely on different pages. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I mean, I think it's great because I think I'd probably be with you on that. <laughs> um, well, that, that that's helpful for us. I mean, thinking of you functioning as a historian and then also, of course, your work in Eastern Europe, that's your work. I mean, not just academic work, but your uh, real ministry work there as well. You have a different vantage point than anybody else. So how can we describe and think about what happened at Asbury is as unusual or even common within church history? Well, it has some commonalities with what's happened through church history and also some unique features in terms of what's common. Really, the, the notion of revival is as old as the Christian faith itself. I mean, if we look at Acts 2, there was a powerful outworking of the Holy Spirit and large-scale movements of spiritual renewal. And there have been periods like that throughout church history. And in our own history, just looking at the last couple of centuries, which is just a blink for somebody sure. in history, um, there were, of course, the First Great Awakening in the 18th century, and then the Second Great Awakening 
which um, was mostly in the 19th century. And um, one of the most dramatic illustrations of a revival, uh, spontaneous revival, was the famous Cane Ridge meeting, 1801, part of the Second Great Awakening. And that's only about 40 miles from right. where I speak. Uh, it's just north of Lexington, and Asbury is a bit south of Lexington. So there have been periods of renewal and revival and refreshing, outpouring, different words have been used. Um, and then in uh, the globe, we can look at the Welch revival. There was an amazing uh, early 18th century children's revival, mostly orphan kids. Mm. Um, so there have been these periodic uh, revivals or renewals of the church, the Korean revival of the early 20th century. I could go on and on, but you get the idea. Yeah. So those are some of the common features. Um, what's unique um, about the Asbury revival, maybe I should say revivals, yes. because as you know, Andy, there have been uh, repeated spontaneous outpourings of the work of the Holy Spirit on our campus, going back as far as 1905, in which E. Stanley Jones was deeply influenced. Then 1950, with Dr. Coleman, the author of the Master Plan of Evangelism, was deeply impacted by the 1950 revival. And then 1970, probably the most famous Asbury revival prior to this past February, in which many, many students and others were deeply impacted. But in terms of what's unusual or unique about February 2023, I think everyone would agree, was the impact of social media. Yes. Uh, just, just to give you an example, even the first day, which was February the 8th, even before that day was out, students were texting their friends far and wide. And there were students coming to Asbury's campus even that first day from the University of Kentucky and several other schools. And then in just a couple of days, there were thousands of people pouring into two red light Wilmore, yes. a village of 6,000 people. So the, the stunning impact of this pilgrimage, I think is a good word to use to describe the uh, many people were so hungry, 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 it hunger is a really important word to use in connection with the outpouring because you could see it on people's faces as well as in their actions as they poured into Wilmore to see what God was doing. Yes, I love it. I like how you start your the article, the kind of like shortened version of the book that you have coming out, but you say, why did Lexington's Costco and Sam's Club outlets run low or out of bottled water more than once this past February? And and I like I like the tack that you take because in in this article that comes out in the Lexington Herald Leader, it's you're you're trying to help people who are a half an hour away realize what was significant about this event. I mean, it it just had wide ranging implications. Well, that's right. One of my favorite stories is uh, shared by a pastor from Arkansas who came after he heard about the revival, and he had a reservation to a hotel in Lexington, and the hotel was sold out, um, and the gal at the desk said to this pastor, um, 
we didn't expect this revival. And he said, <laughs> uh, nobody expected it uh, in human terms. But uh, yes, there was an impact on Lexington as well as farther afield. Now, you have a book coming out with Seedbed um, on this on the revival called Taken by Surprise, which highlights that idea. What do you what's the distinct uh, tasks that you're trying to take on in this book? You know, uh, some have written a theological reflection, Tom McCall and Jason Vickers. There's been a lot of, you know, the New York Times, of a host of other Christianity Day have covered it. What are you trying to do that's distinct in this book? Well, I think it's a first draft because there are so many stories. It will be years or decades before the full story is told. But what I tried to do was pull together available evidence that showed both what was happening in front of our eyes, that is, the obvious work of the Holy Spirit at the altar and in the many overflow venues in Wilmore at Asbury Seminary and local churches. And then I tried to take a step back and based on many interviews with administrators, faculty, students, and volunteers, I tried to give the backstory, which is as miraculous as the front story at the altar. I mean, wow! my wife and I were just blessed. I would come home from an interview. Usually I would interview different people for about an hour. I'd come home, share my notes with my wife, and we'd both be almost in tears. And repeatedly, she typed three drafts of this thing. I'm an old school handwriting guy. Okay. And she, she'd be sitting at the computer typing and she'd have tears in her eyes. It was just that moving. Wow. So when tell me about your process then for writing this book. So you did were these interviews happening concurrently with the outpouring, or do you wait a month or so before it was after it was over? Well, no, I started interviews uh, even the last few days of the outpouring, and it continued through the next couple of months. I was interviewing and writing almost at the same time. I, I've i done a lot of writing in my life, but I've never written as much in as short a space of time. I wrote this book in three months. Now, okay. it's taking longer to come out. That's just the process of publishing, but uh, it was intense for me. I was writing morning, noon, and night. And I've never done that before. Typically, I write in the mornings. But I just felt a, a compulsion to get this out as quickly as I could. Hmm. So it's interesting, too. It's blended with your experience. Tell me about uh, like your own. Uh, I mean, you had the experience of doing the interviews toward the end. But he here you are. You live less than a mile from I'm guessing everybody in Wilmore lives less than a mile, but that's, but, that's right. Hughes Auditorium. But how did this? What was your experience with the outpouring yourself? When did you get over there, and and how did you interact with it? Well, we we left Wilmore at 5 a.m. on February the eighth to visit family in Florida and to attend. Avon Park camp meeting. Oh, yeah. So it was terrible timing <laughs> from my perspective. Uh, we found out about the revival when we arrived at Avon Park camp meeting, and Tom Hermes, the president of the camp meeting, said, we need to pray for what's going on at Asbury. So my wife and I look at each other. So for days while we were there, 
when we had any free time, we were reading as much as we could. We were looking at videos and so forth. So we were on campus only for the last few days. Fortunately, we're a, we were able to volunteer as ushers, which was a great honor and privilege. I'm so thankful we had that firsthand experience. And by the way, the world was coming to Wilmore those last few days. Mm. The large numbers of Latinos and African Americans, very unusual in my experience at Asbury, the percentage I mean. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, there were bookends of the world because in the beginning, one of the formative factors was the call to revival by the gospel choir, which is predominantly African-American, yes. along with students who lingered after chapel that first day. So I, I refer to it as the multinational bookends at the beginning, at the end. Just to give you an example, at one point on the semicircle in front of Hughes Auditorium, there were 40 Brazilians from Brazil kneeling on the grass in front of a flag of their nation, praying for Brazil. So yeah. there were just innumerable stories like that. Uh, so it was a real privilege to um, be some small part of it personally. Now, Mark, were you present at the 1970 revival? Yes and no. I had graduated in 69. Mm. I was in my first year of graduate studies at the University of Kentucky, and I heard about the 70 revival in the most bizarre way. I was in the main library, and I overheard two anthropology students saying, there's something weird going on at Asbury. Uh, we need to go down there and check it out. So that's how I found out something was going on. So Saturday, I went down, sat on the back row in Hughes, and I heard testimonies from students who I know the previous year were not following the Lord. Wow. So that's how, for my perspective, this was of the Lord. This was genuine because I knew these students and I knew firsthand God was doing something remarkable in their lives. I love it. it, it compared to the other revivals that you've mentioned from East Stanley Jones to 50s to 70s, um, you might have already covered this, but beyond social media, was there something else or anything else that was unique about the outpouring this year? If, kind of compared I, I to would, the other Asbury ones. Um, not so much. I mean, um, there are commonalities that have been observed by me and others, uh, not only with uh, previous Asbury revivals, but for example, with the revival at Wheaton, which I happened to be a part of back in 1995. Okay. So I, I see more common features than unique features, but this phenomenon of social media just blows the February 2023 revival out of the water. That just had such a dynamic impact on beginning to end. Yes. When you think about the uh, the response, many of us were praying for our you know, our friends who are engaged in the administration. And you mentioned that this was part of the unique feature was that the miracle is also on the back end. Um, did you interview am administrators from the various institutions? And, and what do you think is, um, what do you, tell me about their response, particularly now as we're multiple months removed from it? Well, it was a spiritual for, uh, experience for me interviewing administrators to a person 
As I mentioned, these interviews would usually run about an hour, and around 45 or 50 minutes into it, people started tearing up. And I'm talking about people that I've known for decades, and I've never seen them cry. Wow. But as they talked about their experience and how God, just in time, provided all kinds of needed help, everything from food to security to people to watch the doors and watch the dorms. Um, it, it was just remarkable. And I can't tell you how many administrators and faculty in my interview said, it was just like Jesus feeding the 5,000. I mean, wow. there was no chance for planning. Think about it. Wilmore wow. had between 50 and 70,000 people descend on the town and the campuses in 16 days. And when you think about food and provision and sleeping and uh, bathroom facilities with no planning, let me give you a story that I think uh, illustrates the point. Mark Whitworth is vice president of athletics and communications. Mm -hmm. Prior to coming to Asbury, he was second in command of the Southeastern Conference Sports. And he um, administered over the years, many tournaments, basketball, football, tennis, you name it. And he told me that he typically planned for a year to a year and a half ahead of time. And here he is in charge of publicity and provisioning for this Asbury revival. And he has not one day to prepare or plan ahead of time. <laughs> so just to give you an example, he told me that about the third day, he was standing in front of Hughes Auditorium on the grass, on the semicircle, looking at the steps of Hughes Auditorium. And there were approximately a 400 people standing on those steps waiting to go inside. A very, very dangerous situation, frankly, yeah. because those steps are steep. If someone had yelled or there'd been a gunshot or, or a firecracker or who knows what, it could have been, it could have been injuries or even deadly. And uh, someone came up to him whom he knew. It was uh, the father of an Asbury student who's from Lexington. He owns a business in Lexington. And he said to Mark, looking at that scene of those 400 people on the steps of Hughes, you all aren't ready. And Mark wow. said, you're right. So this businessman got on his cell phone right that moment, called a colleague of his who owns an event management company in Lexington. And within two hours, Asbury was in possession of 400 feet of crowd fencing. They were able to move those people off of the steps for a much safer scene. Just just one example of many yes. here. That is amazing. I love, I, yeah, I hadn't heard that one. There's, there's a lot of the interesting stories that I picked up on, for instance, like the a seminary student who walked for a couple of years with a placard saying he was praying for revival like this, um, pizza that showed up, uh, other other things like that. What, what about on the volunteer side? You did some interviews with volunteers. What were some of those experiences? Um, well, it was it was really phenomenal to collect these stories. Uh, one of my favorites was in my interview with Timothy Tennant, president of the seminary. He shared that one day a lady came in 
the front door of Morrison Administration Building at the seminary. His office is just off of that main entrance. Mm-hmm. And he connected with this woman, and she was a resident of Wilmore, but she had never had any connection with either the university or the seminary. Amazing. But she wanted to do something to help. And she showed up with her vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and she said, is there anything I can do to help? Wow. And Dr. Tennant arranged for her to sweep Estes Chapel, which was one <laughs> of the overflow venues when, uh, you know, when there was an opportunity to do that. Um, people volunteering food. Uh, another favorite story of mine is a lady from Indianapolis heard about the revival and she cooked chocolate, uh, baked chocolate chip cookies all day one day. She drove four hours from Indianapolis to Wilmore. She couldn't park in a reasonable distance from the campus because of the crowds. So she's with a little cart coming down Kinlaw Avenue. She's, I don't know, maybe a quarter of a mile from the campus at least. And uh, Jonathan Raymond, a friend of mine who lives on Kinlaw, spoke to this woman and she brought cookies to give away. Um, Pizzas were delivered without being requested. Uh, People showed up with pallets of water, with uh, paper towels. Um, There were um, street vendors who showed up giving away hot dogs. Uh, One fella showed up with a truck that he uh, used as a a food vendor, and his plan was to stay one day and just give away hot dogs. But uh, people gave donations so much that he was able to stay four days, and he gave away hot dogs nonstop (laughs) for four days. And you'll love this story if you haven't heard it already. The I've heard none of these. Thank you so much. Keep going. Keep going. This is great. Well, the next one has to do with the Salvation Army, and you well, may have heard I've this heard one, this. Yeah, that uh, the Salvation Army was able to declare the situation in Wilmore an emergency, which gave them uh, authority to bring their trucks, and they were giving away food and water, and uh, that was just glorious. Yeah, now you talk about the pizzas just showing up randomly. Here's my my hypothesis there is that uh, and I was one of these people uh, who was on that campus praying, Lord, if you could just provide me enough money, if you could provide me a pizza. And it is happened to be answered 20 years late. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, speaking of pizza, good. you may enjoy this story. Steve Siemens, good friend of mine, yeah. just recently retired from Asbury Seminary, was in the lobby of Hughes Auditorium. And several people, including Dr. Tennant, were asking him how... 2023 compared with 1970 because he was a senior right. at Asbury in 1970. And, and I've just had him about- on the podcast um, talking about that. And then I just had him on to talk about his new book about healing. So friends, okay. you can go back and check that out. In case you don't know, in case you're coming in midstream here, I'm talking with Dr. Mark Elliott, who has a new book out called Taken by Surprise, published by Seedbed. And I'm just reveling in, in enjoying these stories. He's done this intense, uh, not, not intense, I guess it is intense, but extensive research um, following up with people and their participation of the Asbury outpouring. So, okay, keep going with this story, Steve Siemens. 
Okay, so Steve Siemens is in the lobby of Hughes, Dr. Tennant, several others are there, and they're asking him to compare his experience of 1970 with February 2023, and they're right in the midst of the experience. About that time, someone comes in with 15 pizzas that have not been ordered and left them in the lobby of Hughes. And Steve said to the group, in 1970, we didn't have pizzas. <laughs> <laughs> That's the difference. <laughs> Another uh, case of volunteers that I love are various stories of hospitality. Yeah, Betty Krause is a retired Korean missionary who lives in Wilmore now. And in the course of 16 days, she had 32 different people staying with her overnight, including one NBC reporter. Hmm. Uh, Mark Whitworth got home about midnight one night, and there were nine people staying with him that night. He knew two of them. Wow. His wife invited people in. And over and over again, these stories of hospitality. One of my favorites is a Washington Post story. This reporter, who's African-American, met an African-American couple from Columbus, Ohio, a pastoral couple. They came with three children, and they didn't have a place to stay. And there were logistics involved and networking involved. And an elderly white couple in Wilmore put this family up overnight, and this African-American couple were so impressed by the winsome witness and the hospitality of people in Wilmore. And there were probably a hundred different people in Wilmore who were putting people up overnight because, you know, it's a town of 6,000. There's no such thing as a a hotel in Wilmore. There is Asbury Inn on the campus of Asbury Seminary, but that's just a drop in the bucket compared to the need. Yeah, you can't under, I mean, folks who weren't there to understand the the size and how of Wilmore, it's just hard to grasp. And so those of us who have experience there, you know, can understand like the, the flexibility as needed, even just having enough water. Did you talk, uh, Mark, to any of the city officials? or people who work through that side I of this? Did. I had uh, uh, an interview with Harold Rainwater, who's both the mayor of Wilmore and a longtime faculty member and leader of the equine program at Asbury. And he was deeply moved by the experience. And of course, he had a double vision of this because as mayor of Wilmore, he's uh, dealing with challenges and uh well, just to mention the police and the security situation, this was a fascinating story. Um, the Wilmore Police Department, of course, was completely overwhelmed. And Harold and others were telling me about 10 different police departments that had people using overtime to help Wilmore out. Hmm. Um, Samaritan's Purse paid for I think it was 10 or 15 security to uh, help the campus out. And uh, David Hay, who is the head of security at Asbury, told many amazing stories. And, and think about this, Andy. This is in February of 2023. And on February the 12th, there was a shooting at Michigan State University. Four students lost their lives. Others were injured. And Asbury is anxious because 
as thousands of people are descending on the village, they are in the vast majority well-meaning and hungry spiritually, but still they're unknown. And um, Asbury had to put in place various provisions for protecting students. Yes. Not that there was any danger of harm, but the students were just overwhelmed. I mean, people were wandering into dormitories and, uh, you know, it just, it just wasn't a secure situation. And again, God provided. Uh, I love the story of one policeman from Danville. That's about uh, an hour's drive from Wilmore. And he reported to Dr. Hay, head of security at Asbury, that two Asbury students had come up to him and said, can I pray for you or can we pray for you? Well, he was a little bit stunned, but he said, okay. So he's reporting to Dr. Hay, head of security. I'm not used to that. So when we think about America and the Gen Z generation is not the most sympathetic towards police nationwide. Mm-hmm. And here these Asbury students really are a witness to this policeman. Yes. Uh, I, I'm sure one of the things you have to track as well is the way that the outpouring has impacted communities and movements beyond Wilmore. What's your sense of that? Have you been able to study that as well? I have. And, you know, information still keeps coming in. I had to call a quits to it at some point to get the book book published. But like I say, the stories will continue for years and decades. Um, Right away, even before uh, the revival was done, there were students coming onto the campus from all over the place. We have information on 279 colleges and universities that had some student representation. How so? Whiteboards were placed in the lobby of Hughes, and any students coming in from other campuses could write the name of their school on those whiteboards. And the tally is 279, but we know that's a very conservative estimate because there were no whiteboards at the other venues. Hmm. And there were five overflow venues at Asbury Seminary, Mount Freedom Baptist, Wilmore United Methodist Church, Great Commission Fellowship. So how many other students came from other schools? And we we just don't have a record of it. So uh, students were going back to their own campuses, even as the revival was ongoing. Lee University in Tennessee, Cedarville in Ohio, Baylor University in Texas, Samford University, where I used to teach in Alabama. Northern Kentucky University, a state school, had students come, go back to their campus. They had a mini revival at their campus, and they did baptisms on the campus of Northern Kentucky University, even as the revival was continuing at Asbury. Amazing. Wow. Uh, It's happening in so many different places. Now, what do you hope, Mark, will be the, the way that history will remember this moment? Well, I think one thing will be its authenticity. Um, I spent a lot of time on this issue. I wasn't planning to originally. I wasn't planning uh, when I started on this venture to address critics. 
But as I saw more and more negativity, especially on YouTube, mostly from people who hadn't been to Wilmore, yes, I felt like it needed to be addressed. So I ended up with an appendix. I didn't want to break up the flow of the blessing to address critics, but in a 25-page appendix, okay. I have what's called a critique of the critics. And the way I framed it was to speak to the marks of authenticity. And I've got a few of those here that I'd like to share with you that yes, were do. really a blessing to me. For one, the Super Bowl, February the 12th, could not compete with the revival. The building <laughs> was packed and other venues as well. One student said to a local TV station, like I'm a big Eagles fan and I didn't even watch the Super Bowl. <laughs> so that to me was one mark of authenticity. Another was uh, from the Asbury, excuse me, the Washington Post reporter who interviewed one worshiper, not of the Asbury tribe, who said, you can't tell a bunch of college students that we're going to pray together all night and share our secrets. You can't plan that or engineer that, which is true. Who right. could possibly engineer something like that. Another mark of authenticity, and this one to me is so concrete in terms of its documentation. In the spring semester after the revival last spring, February, uh, uh, spring of 2023, the counseling service at Asbury University was down in terms of student appointments by 80%. Wow. Now, that is something that is concrete evidence of something unusual happening. And then the last one, which I, I just find so powerful, the student body president at Asbury had a number of national TV interviews, and she also wrote in the college newspaper, which did a phenomenal job, by the way. The collegian reporting was outstanding, and people can readily access that if they want to read more. And many of my student quotes came from those Asbury Collegian articles. Anyway, this is a statement that the student body president made, which I thought was so powerful. Quote, I know this campus very well. It's small, and I know exactly which students on this campus hate each other. Those are the people I have seen praying together, singing together, hugging, crying, it's been totally life-changing. Praise the Lord. Wow. Yes, indeed. You know, those are some of the critiques likely that came from outside of the Christian community um, that about rather is real. And I imagine some of those too, where the questioning authenticity came from inside as well. But there's also like the internal critiques. One of the ones that I heard, and I, I had a, an interview with Diane Yuri where she addressed this, but I thought it'd be worth letting you respond to as well. One of the uh, critiques was that it was what people saw from their phones was it was just in a, a lot of singing. And some people thought this is just emotionally charging people up. And there wasn't in, in their what they could see conversions. There wasn't people coming to Jesus uh, and, and repenting of their sins. It was that true, Mark? No, uh, I was in a meeting with Mark Troyer, who's uh, vice president of advancement, uh, just the other day. And he said the estimates are that at least 500 
conversions occurred and thousands of deeper walks in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And of course, we'll never know the exact statistics for something like that. But uh, I saw your podcast with Diane Yuri. I thought she did a wonderful job. And one of my favorite uh, comments that Diane made on your podcast was uh, after she uh, she spent, as you know, most of her time as a counselor at the altar or several altars. And on one occasion, she went outside and looked at the sea of people on this semicircle. And she was so moved by the world, Latinos, African-Americans, people from all walks of life and all nationalities. And uh, it was very moving to her, and it was to me. Mm. As I was ushering those last few days, there would be whole groups of, for example, uh, look to me like Mexicans. We know that there were large numbers of Mexicans who came. And uh, so, so that was one of the criticisms. It was too white. Others said it was not white enough. (laughs) Christian nationalists wanted to come and co-opt and take it over, and they were uncomfortable with the uh, nationalities and ethnicities ethnicities here. And that's another great uh, feather in the cap of the administration. I uh, commend them for the way they not only provisioned the revival, but that they protected it. Hmm. Uh, There was a concerted effort not to allow people to come who wanted to make a name for themselves, who wanted to increase their hits on their social media platforms. And uh, some even wanted to get on the platform and preach without authorization. And Asbury had to place administrators at the steps leading up to the platform to keep people that were unknown from trying to take over and make a name for themselves, so to speak. Mm. Yes, I, I heard some of those stories that well-known artists, I, it, it maybe with maybe it wasn't just selfishly motivated, um, but still, it, you just kindly declined uh, to not to not come. We we have our folks who are handling this. Well, on the positive side, as you're referring to. There were many Christian artists and uh, evangelists. There were bishops coming who humbly accepted Asbury's desire to keep this a student phenomenon. There were hundreds of students involved in worship teams, and some were professional, some were not so polished, and that's okay. It Mm. was a student-generated and a student-led revival to many extents. So here are these um, well-known figures coming into Wilmore, and they, for the most part, humbly accepted the fact that they were just going to be worshipers. They weren't going to be leaders. And one of my favorite stories is um, an award-winning Christian musician was praying at the altar, and two Asbury students prayed with this woman who has a national reputation. They didn't know who she was, and she was She was blessed by these students who were ministering to her, and, uh, you know, many of these well-known figures accepted the fact that uh, this isn't their scene. This is the Holy Spirit scene. Yes. Beautiful. Oh, man. Now, Mark, I I keep thinking about the fact that last time I was in Wilmore, I saw another book that you have recently published on my parents' 
uh, my parents have retired to Wilmore. Um, you you write about Wilmore, okay? You have this book about the outpouring, but you also have a, a book about the street names of Wilmore. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a, you have a unique vantage point. So it, it's interesting to think about even just hearing you say some of these names of people who've been involved. A lot of those people are a part of the history and their their names are on the street signs in Wilmore. Is that right? Well, that's right. When you think about it, many of the streets in Wilmore were carved out of former property of the Asbury College Farm. So naturally, the university has the opportunity to name streets. So we have Kenlaw named after the revered former president of Asbury, Dennis Kenlaw. Uh, I live on Brasher Street, named after a revered Alabama holiness evangelist. And uh, I wish I had time to go into his story, but uh, he was from the uh, from the North and introducing the holiness message in Alabama. And uh, some of those early holiness evangelists in Alabama had to uh, be careful because the KKK was suspicious of anybody from the North, even if they were coming with a Christian message. Well, that's another story for another day. I understand. But I, I think may, maybe this comment, the, if you want to learn about a community, uh, the street signs are a good place to start, wouldn't you say, if you're going to pick uh, up I on think history? So. That's what I discovered. Yeah. That was my COVID project, by the way. Okay. It, it's a neat idea. Well, um, I'm fascinated by this. Uh, tell me, you know, you do a lot of work and service in Eastern Europe and Russia. Um have you, have you heard anything about the outpouring and its impact there? Well, there were people coming in from Russia, from Latvia, from Estonia, uh, well, 40 different countries known by name, and I'm sure there are more than that, but we have documentation on, on 40. And um, yes, uh, I'm going to be able to share my book with my friends in Russia and Ukraine, and what a tragic situation we're living through yeah help us know how to pray for pray for that situation i mean you're attuned to what's going on there not just historically but with friends there you know i i know we're talking about the the outpouring but i would love for you to help us with your expertise there well i don't know where to begin and, <laughs> and stop andy but i'll just say that one of the great tragedies is the division of the church in uh, the former Soviet Union. There have been splits in every church I know uh, between Russians and Ukrainians that previously were united to some degree or another. This goes for Orthodox, for Baptists, for Methodists, for Pentecostals, Adventists. You name the church and they've, they've had serious troubles with uh, trying to stay together. And, uh, you know, it's easy for us in the West who haven't had loved ones killed, uh, say, well, we need to forgive and forget. Well, I'm not in a position to tell people how they're to react to this, but all I can say is there is tremendous need. And by the way, I'm, I'm deeply concerned uh, and excited about the amount of humanitarian help that's come from Western churches and ministries, which is ongoing. And uh, I'm very excited, for example, that uh, Asbury University and Asbury Seminary sent four counseling faculty to Ukraine this past May to train 
pastors and social workers on how to counsel people who've been traumatized by this horrific war. And I'm hoping more of that will develop in time. I'm certainly networking and lobbying for the Asbury institutions to do as much as possible to be of service and to be the hands and feet of Jesus in that nightmare. Yeah, I know. I know that's it's so intense to hear this and just know. I mean, thank thank you for helping us understand that. And and people imagine that the East West Church and Ministry Report, I imagine it has some details on that. You want to tell us about that journal that you have edited or you're the editor Maris of? Well, I edited it from 1993 until 2017. Uh, for several years, I was looking for a successor. Praise the Lord, I found a wonderful successor, Geraldine Fagan, who previously was a reporter in Moscow for 12 years. Uh, I no longer am in charge of day-to-day -day operations, but there's been a great deal of coverage, both um, prior to me uh, turning over the reins in 2017, and uh, Geraldine has done great reporting on uh, how the uh, war is impacting the churches in both Ukraine and Russia. Wonderful. Well, my last question is a question I ask everybody. So, Mark, is there more to the story of you? That's the name of my podcast. And you can probably pick up on the fact that I, I use that connection to the same heritage that we share in this holiness tradition, that there's more than just having our sins forgiven, that there's God's sanctifying grace that's available for us. But I also like it to think of it as in a sense of there being more to the individuals I get to interview. So is there more to Mark Elliott? Well, you know, part of our holiness tradition is the notion that true holiness is social holiness. That is yes. to say, in response to God's great work, in saving us is our opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus. My wife and I have four children adopted from abroad, and I think one of the most exciting and life-changing experiences we've had in ministry in Russia was hosting five summer camps for Russian orphans. I think if we'd been younger, we would have probably tried to adopt some Russian kids in addition to our Colombian and uh, Vietnamese children that we've adopted. So that I, that's uh, part of my story that I haven't talked about previously. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks for sharing that. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast, Mark. It's a blessing. We look forward to seeing this book. And thank you for setting the record for the world, in a sense, that this is here. If you want to find out about what happened from this broad perspective, from a historian's perspective, find this book, and it's called Taken by Surprise. Thanks so much for joining us, Mark. Thanks for having me.